Well, as we continue in our passage in chapter 4 this morning, we continue with the theme of unity in the body of Christ, Christian unity. We know that it's very important uh, because it's the first thing Paul talks about after verse 1. When Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, Therefore I, prison Lord, implore you to walk or live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, the very next thing he writes about for 15 verses is unity, Christian unity. So you know that's first and foremost on his mind when he's writing this letter. It's very important to him. Last week in verses 2 through 6, we dealt with the inward virtues of Christian unity. The virtues such as gentleness, patience, humility, tolerance, and, 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 and diligence. You think about you think about Christian unity, it takes hard work. So the word diligent means it takes a lot of effort. And without any effort, you end up going nowhere with unity. Where there is no effort, there is no unity. Without humility, there's no unity. Without patience, there is no unity. But this morning, we're going to address, or Paul addresses for us, the outward gifts that Christ himself gives to the church for unity. So last week was the inward attitude. Now he's talking about Christ gives gifts for the sake of unity, for the purpose of unity. As I mentioned last week, uh, with new life in Christ comes new values. And one of these values is obviously Christian unity. And these values come in conflict with how we were usually raised, brought up, but definitely with our culture. Okay? And I cited some examples, but I want to do that again this morning. Our culture celebrates individualism for an individual who starts from the bottom and works their way up. The Bible does reverse. God celebrates his son who started up on high and condescended to earth. Our culture celebrates freedom. And yet Jesus tells us, quote, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Notice the contrast between the culture and how we were brought up in Scripture and how God wants us to walk. Here's finally a third one. Our culture celebrates equality, yet Paul tells us to regard others, not as equals, but as more important than ourselves. It comes out of Philippians chapter 2. So you see, the, 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 the Christian walk goes against the grain of society. It goes against the grain of our culture. It even goes against the grain of how we were raised and brought up. It goes against the grain of our flesh, actually, which Paul will address later on in verse 17 in the weeks ahead if we begin there. So our outline is quite simple this morning. In verses 7 through 16, I divide them up into two categories or two parts. Number one, Christ gives gifts. That begins in verse 7. It takes us through verse 10. Then 11 through 16, Paul kind of focuses in on the gifts that are ministry, that minister the word. Okay? He'll hone in on that. And I'm going to have to explain why he does that, at least in the context of why he only picks those gifts and those alone in this book to the church in Ephesus. But let's begin this morning by looking at verse 7. But before we do, let's stand together and read our passage this morning. Read verses 7 through 16 together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 through 16. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, this is a quote out of Psalm 68, 
When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body to the building up of itself in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a powerful passage for the church today, for any and all ages of the church. It teaches us that we are not to leave anyone behind, that we are all collectively and corporately are to move forward in our walk with Christ, in our growth, in our maturity, and that you want no one to remain a child, but that we all partake in this adventure together, in this sanctification together, in this glorification of Christ together. And Father, I pray that you would give me the grace and the mercy to articulate the truths that are here in this passage. May I give honor to you in your word this morning. And may we give honor to you in your word as we hear it, because we want to be doers of it. We want to walk in it. God, be pleased with all the above, with all that are requests. Be pleased with your church. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let's just begin with verse 7. There's a lot here, a lot really packed, jam-packed in these verses. And because you don't have three hours, I'm only going to dedicate two hours this morning to this passage. Well, a few of you are awake. The rest of you. I was just thinking about However, we have food in the back, and I am smelling the aroma, and it's really fantastic. So my stomach's going to start growling, but never mind. Okay, verse 7. Let's read this together. But to each one of us, grace was given according to to the measure of Christ's gift. I want you to know something. As we read that verse, Paul still has in mind unity of the church. We see that down in verse 13. Until we all attain to what? Unity of the faith. We see about unity in verse 3 as we backed up before. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul has in mind in verses 2 through 16, unity, Christian unity, the unity of the church. Now, remember last week in verses 2 through 6, we talked about there are certain attitudes and characteristics internally that are absolutely necessary for unity of the church. One of them is humility. Another one is patience and tolerance and gentleness. There goes the, the mic again. But here, Paul switches, and he adds to the conversation, so to speak, and he says that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has given everybody in the body of Christ a gift. And it has something to do with unity. So if we don't exercise our gift, if we don't know what the gift is, then 
We're not participating in God's will for us to be what? Unified together. You see how it fits together? And so in verse 7 he says, But to each one of us grace was given. This is an all-encompassing statement, verse 7. The word grace means enable with an ability to perform a task. He's enabling each one of us to do a task. And that task has something to do with what? The unifying of the body, Christian unity. So it's not just an internal attitude. It involves external actions. Actions God wants you to do according to the gift he has given you. And so let's back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for a minute, if you will. And we could also be reading out of Romans chapter 12. But let's just do 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to point something out. Verses 4 through 7 in particular, talking about spiritual gifts. Okay? We're not going to spend this morning talking about all the different gifts. But I want you to understand the purpose of the gifts, regardless of what which one you have. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are, here you go, a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, that means services, talk about in the body of Christ and same Lord. And there are a variety of effects. You're going to have a different effect on the body than somebody else. That's a good thing. But the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for your own good. No. What does it say? For the common good. God gave you a gift to serve those around you. It's not for yourself. Right? And so the question is, what is my gift? How do I... How do I Use it. Let me just say something really simple. When, when, when the church in Ephesus read this, or the church of Corinth read their letter, they didn't go and run and take a spiritual gifts test. Okay? They didn't have that luxury. And I'm not sure if that does a really good job or not. But here's what I really believe is how you learn and understand your spiritual gift. You get involved. You start building relationships in the body of Christ. And I think more or less naturally in that context, your gift will come to the surface and with it you'll be blessing and serving others. Does that make sense? I think as we develop relationships, as we grow together, as we learn one another to find out our shortcomings as well as our, our weaknesses, as well as our strengths, we're going to learn how to serve each other better, more effectively. And in that context, in that loving environment, our gifts that Christ gives us comes to the surface. I just wanted to point that out to you because when you read back in chapter 4, verse 7 of Ephesians, we'll go back there in our main text this morning. When you read, but to each one of us grace was given, when you read this, then he's enabled us with the ability to perform a task that involves everybody. Everybody has a gift. Notice he doesn't go and explain what those gifts are. What does he do next? Well, Paul gives us a different thought here. He gives us, he leads us into a new thought in verses 8 through 10. But before I go there, let me hone in on a phrase in verse 7. It was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The measure of Christ's gift. Not only has he given you a gift, he's given you a certain portion of that gift. The measure. It means a portion of it. And let me give you an example of what that means using the gift of teaching. Okay? Michael has the gift of teaching. I, I, he might have it. I might have it. Just say there's four. Say there's 100 people with the gift of teaching. They won't all be used exactly the same. 
One person might have the gift of teaching one-on-one. -on -one. Another person might have the gift, that same gift, but it's, 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 it's equipped to the, to the measure they use it in a small group. A few of them might be able to have a pulpit ministry. But it's, don't think of, if I've got that gift and you got that gift, forget the cookie-cutter mold mentality. You know what I mean by that? Okay? Somebody might be really gifted as a teacher with children. That would not be me. But others with adults. Some of them are in seminaries and they have the gift of teaching and they're in classes or they're training up pastors. You get the idea? To the measure of Christ's gift. They're all apt to teach. But the venues, the context of their teaching could be different from person to person. So think of it that way. And then after that, Paul leads us to a new thought. So I just wanted to see that phrase is very important what Paul's saying. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God sovereignly bestows the gifts upon us, and yet the same gift will not be used exactly the same person to person, so to speak. So relax. Don't compare. You see, you see what this means? I'm thinking this, and I'm like, well, praise God, I should not compare myself to a John Piper, John MacArthur, you know, these guys that are really infinitely, you see what I'm saying? He's given me a certain measure of the gift of teaching. He's given somebody else a certain measure of the gift of teaching, and they're not all exactly the same. And you can apply that to various gifts as well. But I love 8, 9, and 10, because Paul leads us to a new thought, thought in these three verses. What they describe is how Jesus earned or yeah, earned the power and the authority to distribute these gifts. What he does in verse 8, he quotes from Psalm 68:18. In this Old Testament passage, is a picture of a king or a warrior who just came back from battle and he's come back victorious. He's back to a city, he's coming back to his folks, and he just won the victory. He's this warrior king. And he has all these spoils. And when he comes back to his folks victoriously, he distributes them to, to his people. That's the picture here in Psalm 68, 18. Paul picked this out to say, Jesus descended. He ascended victoriously. He conquered sin, death, and Satan. He has the spoils. He is, now he gives gifts to his people because he's a victorious warrior king. Isn't that a beautiful analogy? So he descended to the lower parts of the earth. This refers to his coming to earth. And the lower parts mean he's in the grave. You can't get much lower than the grave. But then he ascended on high as the victorious king of kings and lord of lords. So when he went back, ascended far above the heavens, refers to him coming back as victorious warrior king, distributing gifts to his church, to each one of us, because he has won the victory of love 8, 9, and 10. And that leads us to verse 11, 11 through 16. And now Paul focuses on the gifts that minister the word of God. So what, Paul, what Paul's doing here in verses 7 through 10 is giving a general description of everybody has gifts. But now all of a sudden he's honing in on those who are gifted with the ministry of the word. And he gives a list of them, verse 11. He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastor, and teacher. We'll get to verse 12 in a minute. Let me, let me describe for you and identify these men, or these gifted men. 
It all puts it together, what ties it together. They all have the ministry of the word. The apostles. Let's begin with that first one. The basic meaning of the word apostle means a sent one, a messenger. If you'd like to understand how that word is used many times, it's, an example is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. It says this. But I thought it necessary to send to you Aphroditus. Sin, okay? Say, related to the Greek word. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, there's that word again, and minister to my need. So we see that the word apostle has a very general meaning of sent one. It's a messenger. Very, very general. But then it also has a specific meaning, a specific reference to the 12 disciples, or those who are eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. And we see that specifically defined in Acts chapter 1. Remember, they were only had 11, and they were looking for a 12th one, and they got Matthias, but one of the qualifications was what? He had to be an eyewitness of the risen Savior. Paul's an apostle. He was an eyewitness of the risen Savior. An untimely one, as he describes himself, but nonetheless, an eyewitness of the Savior. So, if anyone today calls himself an apostle, they better use it in the basic sense of someone sent me to give you a message from God. Not that he gave me one that's not here. Okay? You got with anyone who calls himself an apostle, basically run from them. Seriously. And there are men and women out there today that call themselves apostles. Actually, let's look at that for a minute. Right now, 2 Corinthians chapter. 12 verse 12. Do you know that apostles perform signs and wonders to prove their apostleship? Listen to 12 12 of 2 Corinthians. The signs of a true apostle. What does that mean? Wait a minute, there must have been false apostles, along with mixed in by Satan with the to counteract the true apostles. But listen to this. The signs of the true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. They validated their message, these miraculous signs and wonders and miracles. Then what about Hebrews chapter 2? Turn there for a minute. Write that down, if you will. Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to this. Verse 3 and 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Great Savior. After it was first spoken through the Lord, the salvation is first spoken through Jesus Christ. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. Who are those who heard? His disciples, the apostles. God also testified with them. God testified that Jesus is the Son of God and He is the Messiah of the Old Testament by empowering Him to do signs and wonders and miracles. But God the Father also testified that these were his true apostles by testifying with them, both by what? Signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will, verse 4. You see the consistency here. How do you know someone was a true apostle? They were able to perform these miracles. Let's go to the prophets next. Paul mentions prophets next. Some as apostles, and some as prophets Verse 11. Prophetic ministry is twofold. It foretells as in the future and foretells the truth. Does that make sense? So God would have a prophet write down scripture. And actually, think of it this way. Paul, an apostle, was also a prophet. James, an apostle, also a prophet. 
John, right? Also, an apostle also prophesied. The revelation. Does that make sense? So a lot of the apostles also filled the office of prophet. And in their writings, they not only tell the future, but they would tell how God wants us to live. As a matter of fact, the second part is more is more dominant than the first part. Okay? Does that make sense? So the ministry was twofold. They foretold the future and they foretold the truth. They received and declared the word of the Lord under direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as I just mentioned, some of the apostles like Paul and Peter and John had this function as well. Together, the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Paul, the, the Greek grammar is very particular, very specific. He is not saying that the apostles and prophets are the foundation. He's saying they laid the foundation, the foundation being the word of God. And guess what? It's closed. The canon is closed. The foundation is laid, which means what? Their ministry is now complete and no longer in existence. So there are no apostles, eyewitnesses of Christ, the risen Lord, and there are no longer prophets for the purpose of writing down more scripture, foretelling the future. Why? Because they have completed the foundation, the word of God. That's why it's our final authority. And we all 66 books we have, no more is to be added and disclosed. And is closed. The word of God is our authority. So he gave some as apostles and evangelists. I mean, so does apostles and some as prophets. This leads to the next two. Because the next two preach the foundation. The next two, the evangelists, pastor, teacher, which I take as synonymous there, they preach what the apostles and the prophets laid. They preach the foundation that, that, that they produced. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The evangelist simply is this. There are bearers of good news. There are bearers of good news. They travel to reach the lost. They proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They call men and women and children to repent of their sins. To, to repent even of their good works. And trust solely in Christ alone. And they're gifted to do that. Just as the apostles were gifted, their prophets were gifted, the evangelist was gifted in the area of preaching the good news and calling men and women and children to repent and come to Christ. He's gifted to reach the lost. And then there's the fourth one here, as pastors and teachers. I don't take this as two separate offices. I think the, Greek, the grammar explains to us, it shows us that this is referring to one gifted person. Pastor simply means shepherd. The Greek word poimos, shepherd, his responsibility is to feed, to lead, and to guide spiritually the body of Christ. To even protect and to guard against wolves in sheep's clothing, against doctrinal error. That's what they do. That's what they pour their lives into that very purpose. Now, why do they do that? Verse 12, as we move on in our text. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I, I don't want to immediately just go to the work of service. I want to back up to the equipping of the saints and ask this question. What are the saints? What are you to be equipped with? The Word of God. It, beloved, it's not enough if you have the gift of helps and just go help somebody. You are a bearer of the truth. You are a bearer of the gospel. 
And as you're being fed, when you exercise whatever spiritual gift you have, you are not only exercising that spiritual gift, but you are armed with the truths of God's Word. Because guess what happens in real life, in nitty-gritty, everyday life, when you go help somebody, if you're doing administration, or if you're just having fellowship, or you have the gift of health and you're helping somebody, guess what happens? You normally get into a conversation with that person. Somebody might share something deep with you. What are you going to do? What kind of counseling are you going to give them? Yes, you're exercising your spiritual gift, but are you going to be a truth bearer and bring the truth of God's word lovingly into that person's life because you've entered into a conversation with them and they bear their soul with you or they share a hurt with you or they share a struggle with you? Are you going to know where to go to in God's word? It doesn't mean you quote scripture to them, but that your words have been shaped with the truths of God's words. So when you speak to them in conversation, you're giving them wisdom from God's word. You're loving them with God's word. Does that make sense? Not only that, as you're feeding upon God's word and you're exercising your gift, because you are been in God's word, you're doing it with the right attitude. You're doing it out of a genuine love for God and that person. You're doing it with the right spirit. You're doing it out of humility. Why? Because the word of God is shaping you. And so as you exercise your spiritual gift, you're doing it having been shaped by God's word itself. Does that make sense? And not only that, as I just said, plus you're ready and armed, not, not to, you know, you're, you're ready to, to share truth with that person. And it could be that he comfort, encouragement. So you see how the word of God and the gifts blend together to make us, to make us, to, to help with the unity of the body of Christ. So the purpose is to equip believers with the truths of God's word. And I like that to equip means perfection. Not that we're perfect, but going that direction. Okay? It's a medical term, actually. It means to set straight, to properly put in line. So as we're in the truths of God's word, the word is putting us in line with God. So as we go and exercise our gift with another believer to encourage them, to serve them, we ourselves are being lined up. So that when we speak, we're speaking truth to them. So that when we're serving them, we're doing it with a loving, humble attitude. God's word sets us straight. I love 1 Timothy 1 5. It really came to mind as I was thinking about this this week. Paul says, The goal of our instruction, 1 Timothy 1 5, the goal of our instruction. What's the goal of preaching? You know, broaden the meaning of instruction. Biblical instruction. What's the purpose? What's the point? What's the point of a small group Bible study? What's the, what's the point of a Sunday school class? What is the point? What's the goal? What are we getting at? What are we reaching for? The goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Don't you love that? That's the goal. So that when we exercise our spiritual gifts, we're in fellowship with one another, we're actually it's coming from an actual love. That Christ is filling us as fountains with his love, so that we just, when someone touches us like a sponge and it just oozes all over him, so to speak. But not just in doing a task and exercising my gift, but also my attitude. I do it with the right motive, with the right purpose, the right attitude, and the right cause. And why is this? Because God does not delight in rote, repetitious, routine obedience. He delights in loving obedience. And believe you me, God knows the difference. And believe you me, I am guilty of the obedience of my own life at times, for sure. 
just do it to get it done. And I don't have the right attitude. Question, parents. When you, when you, when you want obedience from your children, for example, if you want them just to clean their room, do you really want them just to get the job done and do it with a terrible attitude? Or do you want them to do it out of respect and love for you? I, I know you want the latter. And so does the Heavenly Father. He doesn't want us grumbling on the way of doing our spiritual gifts. He wants us to do it out of genuine love. And that's really what's, what's happening here. That's why Paul talks about and focuses and hones in on the, the gifts that are centered around the ministry of the Word because of the profound effect that it has, because God is after genuine unity. Not just this external fake stuff, but the real unity of the Spirit that we are called to maintain. I like the next phrase in verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ. The word expressed, the word build up means development, edification, encouraging the saints to be obedient to the word. So they have the proper use of their gifts. It results in the, in, the, in the unity, in the building up the body of Christ. And think about this corporately. Ask yourself this question. What kind of effect am I to have on Grace Community Church? That's really what this is about. We talk about application, right? Well, Paul is saying, God has equipped you. God wants you. God desires for you to live in a way that you have a positive, profound, effect on those around you that will result in the building up of the body of Christ together. Look at verse 13. Paul gives us the overall goal until we all, I like these two little words, we all attain unto the unity of the faith. You know what this reminds me of? Leave no man behind. The military has that phrase, don't they? When someone's wounded, they go out there to that battlefield and they drag them to safety. Don't they? They leave no one behind. That's the idea here, folks. Leave no one behind. We're going to grow together. This is not about me growing. It's about you growing. Here's the reality. We're all at different places of growth. We're all have different experiences in life in this process. So I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. And I just want to illustrate something for you. Chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I love this picture. Verse 12 through 14 or 15. I love this attitude of a healthy church. And of all the churches in the New Testament, one of the healthiest ones was the church at Thessalonica. When you read that letter, these people really had it together. It's definitely not like the church of Corinth, okay? They're probably one of the worst examples of this one. These guys had it together. They were a healthy church. But notice, let's read this, chapter 5, verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Probably elders, those who have the gift of teaching, pastors. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because of the work God called them to and equipped them for. And then he says this, live in peace with one another. Oh, that's easy. Okay, look, peace, let's just end the sentence there. Let's get on with life. No. This is the context. Verse 14. You ready? We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. <clears throat> Wait a minute. There's a wrench all of a sudden thrown into this little peace with one another. Well, in that context of real life, some of those people who are called to live in peace with one another will be unruly. The Greek word 
means idle. It means idle. Admonish those who are idle, not doing their job. Those who are not diligent, those who are not exercising the gift, those who are really not getting involved, they show up every once in a while. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted, the timid. Help the weak. Notice what's going on here. In this context, in this church, there were those who were idle. In this church at Thessalonica, there were those who were faint-hearted. There were those who were weak. And then there's a catch-all phrase because there's other kinds of people. And he says, be patient with everyone, no matter where they're at in their walk with Christ. You've got to be patient. Wow. And here's another thing. I remember reading this years ago, and I was thinking, you know what? There's times I've been idle. There's times I've been faint and timid. There's times I could have been labeled the weak one. Right? So maybe you know somebody who's weak right now at Grace Community Church and you want to minister to them, but do it with the idea of this. I have been weak in the past myself. And you know what? There could be a time, a month, a day ahead where I become weak again. So you do it patiently. You do it lovingly. You do it peacefully. Isn't that a beautiful picture? This is the church at Thessalonica. This is what it had all together, so to speak. And here we are told that the people were like there. Let's back up to our text in Ephesians. I thought I'd share that with you. Because leave no man behind. If they're weak, if they're timid, don't leave them behind. The idea is we want everybody to move forward together. Let's go to verse 14. Well, yeah, let's go to verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Notice the result is verse 14. This is why men are gifted with the ministry of the word. It's because God wants everyone to grow up. He wants no one to remain in a state as a child, but to grow up and become mature. Here's a description of a child. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're easily tossed by waves in the wind. The picture is that of a ship in the ocean. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? But children can be like a rudderless ship, can't they? The wind's coming from this direction, they're going there. The wind's coming from this direction, they're going to go that way. An adult has got a rudder because they have the truth. The truths of God's word is the rudder for our lives. So the wind, not if, when the storms of life come, we're still on course. A child easily gets off course. Those who have been growing up with the Word, or built up by the Word, or maturing in the Word, the more stable they become, not because the seas are calm, not because the seas of life are calm, but because the rudder is the truth of God's Word. So that when the winds and the storms do come and the waves come crashing in, you're not all over the place. You stand firm on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're standing firm because His Word is your rudder. It will always steer you in the right direction. The rudder of God's Word, the truths of God's Word, keep us on course. But, you've got those in verse 14 that produce the winds of error, the wind of false doctrine. They do it by trickery and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. For example, listen to this. They use scripture as in Matthew 4. A lot of these people who will steer you the wrong, get you off course, will use scripture to get you off course. 
Satan did this to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. He tried to use scripture. Many of them will disguise themselves as sheep. They'll be in the body of Christ. They're not going to be outside, but they're going to be dressed in sheep's clothing, but inside be a ravenous wolf. And they too will try to steer you over time in the right, in the wrong direction, excuse me. Many of them will be persuasive because they're convinced in their own mind, their own consciences are seared as with a branding iron. They are convinced that they are right. And they even say, thus saith the Lord. Joel Osteen would be one. Norman Mississippi, all this positive thinking stuff. Health, wealth, and prosperity gospel folks. All of them, they, they are seared. They honestly believe that they're telling the truth. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says they are seared as with a branding iron. You know what a branding iron does when you want to brand your cows? Okay, you put it over a hot fire, right? And it turns and glows red, and it's just hot. So when you put it on the rear end of that cow, what happens? Your little initials are on the rear end of the cow, so that belongs to me. But it's branded. It doesn't go away. He's saying that their consciences are like that. They've been branded and their consciences have been seared by false doctrine. And so they are utterly convinced that they are telling the truth. That's why, folks, I encourage you all the time. This, this is all we have. Measure what you say, not only from here, but from the TV and the radio and books by this book right here. Star Runner. It will always steer us to Christ. It will always steer you to Christ. It will always steer you to God's will. It will always produce in you a greater joy for the Lord Jesus. It will always get you more ready, so to speak, for His coming. It will always help you to begin to not just put one foot, but both foot feet into heaven. It will prepare your heart to receive your Savior. It will prepare you to those words, Thou good and faithful servant. So as a result of these men exercising their gifts, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, even we're on the, we're on the foundation that is laid by the apostles and prophets, even we're benefiting from their ministry. As a result of their ministries, we're no longer be children tossed here and there by ways carried about by every wind of doctrine. Well, how does that come? By the trickery of men. Men who are tricked, self-deceived, they're crafty and deceitful, they scheme. Verse 15, contrary to them, we speak the truth in love. How can you speak the truth in love if you've not been in the truth yourself? So notice again the theme we are to grow up. And notice we. We are call I, me, we. Here's the Apostle Paul. I think he really defined if, if he was a military guy, then he'd say, I don't want us to leave any man behind. We're going to do this together. And if you see someone being left behind, go back and get them, admonish them, encourage them. They could be faint of heart. They could be struggling. Don't just leave it up to the elders or the pastors. You have this ministry too. You know what would give, you know what would give my, my heart the great joy is when I see you guys living this out amongst yourselves. I try to be an example, but you know I'm no perfect example. Man, when you are loving one another this way, if you see a brother hadn't seen him in a long time, and you go out to them and reach out to them, that, that's living the Christian life. That's striving to maintain unity. And you do it out of love, you do it out of humility, with the attitude of verses 2, 4, 5, and 6. And, and, and you know what? Everybody has a gift of helps. 
thing. One person is doing all things you never say, I don't have to get, I got to get the help. I think that's kind of like a generic gift. Everybody can help. Right? Amen? And there's no gift of encouragement. Everybody has it. Use it. Let's go on. We'll wrap up. Verse 15. To speak the truth in love, as I just mentioned. We're to grow in all aspects, in every aspect of our lives, in all content, in every relationship. I want to grow up in every relationship I have. Not just this one. My Christianity is not to be compartmentalized, compartmentalized to a certain aspect of my life. But when God changes me, when He conforms me to the image of Christ, when I'm being set apart for Him, it affects every aspect of my life. Because He's changing me. Into Him who is the head, even Christ. He's the goal, isn't it? When you're looking at the Word of God, you're looking at the Christ. You're gazing at the Savior. He's the cornerstone of this book. Verse 16. For whom the whole body, not just the parts, the whole body, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile, no matter what your background, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. I, I look at verse 16, it's almost like he's bringing everything together he's just talked about. He's just written about. He's kind of summarizing it. And I love this, the proper working of each individual part. That's you. Every one of you is an individual part but you're part of a whole. Are you doing your part? Am I doing my part? That's what Paul's getting at here. Because when we're all doing our part, what happens? Verse 16, causes the growth of the body. And he's not talking about numerical growth, he's talking about spiritual growth. We know that because of the context. He's not talking about individual growth, he's talking about body growth together. Paul wants to see 70 people of Grace Community Church working together, being unified in their growth together so that we all are taking steps forward in our Christian walk, leaving nobody behind. It takes certain attitude, verses 2 through 6. And Christ has equipped you to be also, is giving you an external service, all for the sake of unifying us together in a unified growth pattern, so to speak. Unified growth pattern. So let me leave you with the question. Because each one of us has an effect upon the spiritual growth of Grace Community Church. And we do. That's what Paul's saying here. He's equipped us, right? Whether good or bad, we have an effect on Grace Community Church. Each part, and therefore each person, is important to the maturity of this church. I just want to say this. You, every one of you, is vitally important to the growth and maturity of Grace Community Church. Not because of me, but because Christ has given you a gift. He has equipped you, and he's developing an attitude within you that will help unify us so that we together can grow together in the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is about body growth, not individual growth. It's about spiritual growth not numerical growth. It's about leaving nobody behind. Let's say it, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this powerful passage of Scripture. It just really goes against the grain of modern-day thinking. It goes against the grain of our society and how it tells us to be, to, to live in our freedom, and yet you call us to, to serve you. 
to become slaves again, once we're freed from sin, to become your servants, to be servants to each other. God, you, you don't want us to be individuals, lone islands, trying to, to walk this Christian life by ourselves, but we're, you want us to, you so want us to do this together as your family, as adopted sons and daughters. And you've equipped us, you've equipped us to encourage each other, to be servants. And God, you have those who, who are involved in the, the equipped to do the ministry of the word, so the truths are, are coming into us, the truths of your word are conforming us into the image of Christ, so that when we exercise our gifts, we're, we're also truth bearers. So they're ready to give an answer, we're ready to encourage and to comfort and give biblical, wise counsel from your word. And not just what I think, but really God. The church is not about what we think. The church is what you think. And what you think we find in your word. And there we find you will for our lives. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name.